For our scripture reading this morning, I will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord uh, your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all th this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Good morning to all of you. Like I said last evening, it's always good to be in Virginia. And it's fun to visit a place where you have so many connections. My 
Both of my parents attended Turner Ashby High School. And you know how it is when you uh, are growing up with your parents, they start telling you these stories about what, how they acted when they were teenagers. And uh, my parents tell me this story that dad would walk down the hall of the old Turner Ashby High School building and mom would be in study hall and I don't know what sort of relationship she had with her teacher, but he would nod at her and she would get out and go out with dad and I'm sure there wasn't the most productive studying going on when they, when they met each other. Um, and so I came back to this area to find a wife and so it's always good to be back here in Virginia. You know, growing up, my parents led us kids in a number of activities. And these were activities that we did regularly, constantly. And I'm guessing your family was that way as well. Uh, one of our activities that we did is that two or three times a day, we would sit down and we would eat together. Now, at its surface, that sounds like a pretty commonplace activity. It sounds pretty biological. You're just doing energy intake but there was something actually quite a bit deeper about that activity. You see, eating together was a way to value family. It was a way to value people. And it wasn't just a way to value those things, it was a way to develop those same values in us as children. It was a way to shape us, to make us into a certain kind of person, into a mannerly person. We learned how to pass food in the right direction and how to wait to pass the food until Dad said it was time to pass the food. And we learned how to be conversationalists. You know, breakfast time was always a bit of a problem. But outside of that, we would, we would sit around the table and we would talk to each other. Uh, we learned to be family-oriented children by sitting down and eating together. Eating together wasn't just an activity. It was what I'll call a practice. It was something, an activity that shapes us, that forms us into a, a certain type of person. We had other activities, and, and maybe you had these as well. We did family worship time together, family devotions. For our family, it was right after breakfast in the morning, and we'd go out to the living room and sit around, and we would read, and we would sing. Sometimes we sang through a hymnal. We'd take the Mennonite hymnal and sing through the hymn book, and then we would pray together as a family. Now, that was a way to honor God, but that was also a way to build honor for God in us as children. So it's, it's multifaceted. Not only did we worship the Lord, it created a worshipful person. Uh, it was a practice. Practices are powerful, shaping activities. Uh, they are a way we express a value, but also a way that we develop values. And by doing those activities over and over and over again, we become a certain type of person. Now, it's not just Christians who have practices. I drove past the JMU Stadium yesterday, and they're in the area around, they're the Dukes, right? Uh, around the, what's the name of the stadium? Around the stadium there, there were people practicing an activity that's very important in, in at least the collegiate world, and that's the, pra the practice of tailgating. So tailgating is a practice of picnicking. Uh, it's often done in a parking lot before a football game. But it's not just about eating food before a game. It's about celebrating football. It's a way to celebrate family. But it also develops a love in the next generation. I mean, if your dad took you every weekend to tailgate before the big game and you did that week in and week out, 
you will become a certain type of person. You will develop a taste for tailgating. You'll develop a love for tailgating. You'll develop a love for, for football. There's another practice people do that's you know, pledging allegiance to the flag. It's a way to honor the country, but it's also a way to develop in ourselves, uh, a, form us into lovers of the country. You know, the big thing in the news these days about Colin Kaepernick, who, who isn't standing up when the national anthem is being played uh, before the 49ers um, play football. And you see that thing of standing before the national anthem, the thing of playing the national anthem, that's a practice. It's a forming activity. Now, I said last evening that education is a process in which Christian education, I should say, is a process in which we develop young people who love and serve the Lord. People who are prepared to be involved in what God is doing in the world people whose hearts are focused on the Lord and on his work, and people who have the skills to do those things. People who serve the Lord in the local church body. People who serve the Lord in evangelism and discipleship and cross-cultural sorts of ministries. Uh, people who serve the Lord by subduing the earth in, in their work as farmers, as businessmen. We want to raise up children who will bless the Lord, who will serve him, who are servants and who view themselves as servants. And this morning, I want us to look at a number of ways in which we can shape those sorts of people. I'm a teacher, but my talk this morning is not for teachers. It's for parents. It's for babysitters. It's for grandparents. It's for teenagers. It's for all of us because all of us influence young people. We're all in the business of taking babies and moving them into adults. And so what I have to say this morning is really more for a church than specifically for people who work in a school. So since we learn the most by doing, isn't that the way generally we learn the best? We learn the most by doing. What are some of the practices, what are some of the activities that we could do with our children, with our young people, that will develop them into people who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and who serve them, who are servants. Now, I'd like to focus on three of those this morning, but before that, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to read a passage here to frame a bit what I want to share. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 15 through 18, but let me just step back and look at the context here a little bit. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and then through the rest of the chapters of this book, uh, Paul is challenging people to live a life worthy of their calling. And what he's saying is this, if you, if you claim to be a Christian... If you claim to serve the Lord, if you claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit, then we should make sure that our lives match who we claim to be. And then he goes on and he mentions just a number of ways that we should live. He mentions that there should be unity in the church. I think you see that in chapter 4. And then he talks about practicing new ways of living. We should be truth tellers. We should be diligent people. Uh, he talks about living a life characterized by love. And then we get to verse 15 in chapter 5, and Paul talks about wise living. He said, this is a necessary part of following Jesus is to live wisely, and let's read. Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I'd like for us to notice the three aspects of wise living in this passage. Notice the first one in verse 15. The first aspect of wise living is that we are to live thoughtfully. We're to live carefully. We're to pay attention to how we are living to our personal behavior. In some ways, he's calling us to be somewhat introspective, to look in on ourselves and to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we living? We're to live examined lives. So in the area of raising our children and educating, we're to pause and ask ourselves, how are we doing with this? What is our practice? What is our behavior in terms of our educating our children? And then the second aspect he talks about what that living should look like. It's not enough to just look and ask ourselves. There is a way, and notice what it is, verse 16. Verse 16 says that we are to make the most of the opportunity that we have. Make the most of each moment. You know, the Olympics just wrapped up in Rio, and when an Olympian wants to go to the Olympics and compete, they make sure that they make use of the moments they have before they arrive at the Olympics. And Paul is saying, when you live, be that way. Make sure that you're making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because we live in evil times. We live in morally corrupt times. And if we're not paying attention, maybe we'll be morally corrupted. Or maybe we should pay attention to how we can help our children not be morally corrupted. So make the most of every opportunity. And then the third aspect in verse 17, notice that the third aspect of wise living is to understand what God's will is, how we should use each opportunity. And this is contrasted with foolishness. Foolish people live stupidly, they live ignorantly, they just senselessly walk through life without thinking, how am I actually living? Am I making the most of every moment? And then he gives an example, and I won't spend long on the example, but the example is alcohol, it's addictions. He said people that are foolish, they're people who go and get addicted to substances that do not allow them to be controlled by the Spirit. They just stupidly wander around senselessly instead of being led by the Holy Spirit. So let's just review. To live wisely for the Lord means that we're introspective, we're thoughtful. We ask ourselves, how am I doing? And then we live intentionally. We, we say, here is the way I will live. And thirdly, we make an effort to learn what God's will is. How, how do I live this way? I'd suggest that there are few areas, very few areas more critical to us living intentionally, to living thoughtfully, to focusing this sort of life than in the raising of our children. And so it's with that framework, with that call to me to be careful with how I'll raise my children, that call to me as a teacher to be careful how I train and teach my students that we want to look at these three activities, these three practices that will help develop people who are servants, people who want to serve the Lord. Now, I invite you to turn back now to Deuteronomy chapter 6 because these three practices are practices that the Lord called his children to practice um, in Deuteronomy. 
And I want to just make a few comments here. Um, one is, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I'm not viewing this primarily while, let me back up. When we think of education, we often think of school or homeschool. But that's not the way I'm using the word this weekend. I'm using it more broadly to include every moment of teaching and training from the moment a child is born until they be truly become a mature adult. And so this involves all of us. And the practices that I'm going to talk about this morning are not just practices that take place in a formal, sort of structured setting. They're practices that we can do in our own homes. They're practices that should just become regular activities that we all engage in. They should just be a, a part of the rhythm of our life. That's the thing about practices. If they're not a normal part of our life, they're probably not practices. If you only tailgate once a year, you're not really developing a love, a heart for tailgating in your child. It has to be something that is done regularly. If you only have devotions with your family once a month, you're not really involved in a practice. So what are these practices? Well, let's take a look. Verses 6 through 9. The first practice is the practice of Scripture. That is, that our teaching and training of our children should be saturated with God's Word. All the moments of teaching and training that we do should be saturated with God's Word. Now, I've experienced how powerfully the Scripture can shape people's lives. I teach in a classroom that has 10th graders through 12th graders, and each year I get a new batch of students in, and I watch them, and I try to figure this new batch out. What are they like? Uh, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And I, when I notice those habits and attitudes, I often in the mornings, as kind of our opening exercise, I'll have a, some sort of devotional where I take them to the Scripture and I try in, in fresh and new ways to take the Bible and explain it to them and then talk about how that fleshes out in their daily lives. Recently, I've heard from one of my former students who is currently in voluntary service and periodically I hear from her and she's mentioned I think twice what she remembers the most about high school and she talks about her years in high school and how they were good years and she has this little phrase and she says and and the devotionals and the devotionals you see of all the things we had done during that school year and those years she was with me it was actually the practice of going to the word of God and hearing it taught in such a way that it could be applied to her life that made the substantial differences. Uh, there was a man in our church who, who uh, told the story about how one of his children came home from school where they had been exposed to the Word of God, and he said something like this, that the child came home and said, you know, Mr. Heatwall or whoever had taught this had said that the Bible said you're going to be judged on every idle word, and, and she, is, that, is that true? Something like this. Now, I'm sure that student had heard that before, but it was the practice of going to the Word of God, going to the Word of God over and over again that began to shape and form a certain type of person. Notice the specific ways. Verse 6, one of the ways that we can make this a practice is by putting God's Word in our hearts. It's by memorizing Scripture, and I'm sure you probably all have been involved in this sort of activity. Uh, memorizing Scripture makes it ready for us to use. It's, it's quick recall. Memorizing Scripture allows us to marinate in a passage for a while. My students are right now memorizing Psalm 1, and it just gives me a chance to come back and back to that psalm again and to listen to those words and be formed by them. But it's not just a memorizing Scripture. Notice that they were to 
to talk about the scripture all the time with their children. Uh, do we do that in our homes? Do we do that in our classrooms? Every opportunity, when you see a beautiful sunset, do you, do you just talk about, guys, look, look how beautiful that is. Isn't that amazing that God made a sunset like that? Isn't it really cool that grass is green? What would happen if grass were red? Well, why did God make grass green? And just permeate all of our lives with this sort of under-talk, undercurrent of pulling us to God, pulling us towards the scripture. Um, you know, in Romans chapter 1, God condemns the pagans because when they had evidence of God in creation, they did not honor him or give him thanks. So do we honor God and give him thanks and call attention to the people we're teaching and training? Um, when you hear beautiful music, do you connect that to mathematics and how math can describe the, the, the harmony that's going on there and call attention to your students, your children, that God is the creator of math. Do you, when you're studying history or talking about history with your children, do you note that Jesus really did come at just the right time and how the Roman Empire had created this space and time where Jesus could step into and there were roads to travel and the gospel could spread and are we just stand in awe of God? I think we should incorporate visual reminders. Notice that there were visual reminders here. And I know that, um, let me back up. Visual reminders on walls, on doors, um, maybe even on the ceiling. So when you lay in bed at night, you can see God's word above you. Maybe you can beam it up there somehow. Those visual reminders should be a part of the environment in which we teach and train children. They should be a part of our homes. Do our homes have God's word where it's, it's visual? In our classrooms, I think, we need to make sure the word of God is present. But don't, don't do it, do it in fresh ways. Do it in creative ways. Um, in our school, prominently featured in a hallway is that famous painting, drawing, engraving, etching of um, Dirk Willems. And so it's, it's not just a visual reminder in terms of text, but there can also be pictures that we immerse our children in. God told us to do this, told his people. He said, make scripture a practice in your life. If we want children who are servants, who grow up to be servants, then the practice of scripture needs to be a part of our daily routines. The second practice we notice in verses 13 through 18 at a number of different spots, and it's the practice of servanthood. Now, if you've heard me, You've heard me say that we're trying to develop servants. So what does the practice of servanthood look like while we're trying to develop servants? One family in my community is a family of servants. They have an uncanny ability to sniff out work. And they always know where work is happening. And if you go there and you beat them to it, which is rare, you'll find them soon after they're working, they're serving. And they busy themselves in work, in service. This, this servant mentality is actually multi-generational. Their grandfather and their grandmother, I think they're in their 70s, they continue to work and to serve. Uh, they believe that it's not just important to tithe with your money. This grandfather and grandmother say that it's important to tithe your time. And they like to tithe their time to, to service projects. Uh, one day, we were sitting in church, and somebody had the misfortune of throwing up in, in the actual church building while the service was going on, and very quickly, who appeared on the scene? It was that grandfather with a bucket. He was there to serve. 
one of this family's daughters teaches at my school, and just this week I caught her washing up the kitchen, and I had to remind her that it was somebody else's job to do that. And it's tough when people are so servant-minded that you have to keep them actually from serving. But the odd thing about this family is this. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about what they do. I'm not sure that those parents have spent a lot of time actually telling their children that they need to be servants. Their children just have always been servants. Their parents are always serving. And their children have learned to work. If there are chairs to put up in the gym, the children are putting up chairs. And they're doing it quickly so they can move on and do something else. If it's time to tear down, they're tearing things down. They've never lived life any other way than just having the practice of serving. In this passage, God calls his people to the practice of faithful obedience. Look at verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And then in verse 18. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you. That you may do what is right. Is it possible that in our energy to train our children to be servants, that we spend too much time telling them to be servants, and that we ourselves can become selfish and self-centered. I mean, it's a lot of work to raise children if you haven't tried it before, trust me. They don't self-parent very well. And you're constantly working and, and growing these people, and it's uncomfortable sometimes. And maybe we can begin to drop the practice of servanthood all the time that we're trying to raise people to be servants. And so one of the things, one of the practices we need to have as people who are educating another generation is to make sure that we continue being servants ourselves. I'll suggest a few specific practices. Make a practice of serving those you teach and those you train. In this case, it might be your children. Do acts of kindness to them. Say please and thank you. Even when you could demand something of them, model the graciousness of a servant. Make sure that we do dirty jobs alongside our students and our children and that they're not always the ones doing those dirty jobs. We should maybe make traditions of service. I remember once when I lived in Puerto Rico that there was a very poor family in our community and one Christmas my parents took us and we bought gifts and delivered them to their house. It was an act of service that we did. And might I suggest that we should develop some traditions of service, some acts that maybe we do on a periodic rotation that our children or those that we're responsible for get some practice at serving, serving in maybe more unusual ways. Like I said last night uh, with my high school students, I have a practice, a tradition of serving others right before Christmas time, and we've done a, a variety of things, but for a number of years, we simply went out in the community and did random acts of service for people. We, we loaded up rakes and lawn mowers, and I know, but it's Christmas in South Carolina, and there are still leaves on the ground, and, and we just went into a section of town, and we just drove until we saw a house that looked trashed and that, like it needed some help, and we just knocked on the door and said, hey, we'd we just like to serve you. Could we rake your leaves and mow your grass for you? And, and you know, that lady was so thankful. And she said, my neighbor next door, she is so ill. And see what her house looks like. And would you just go over there and take care of that one? So we just went next door and took care of that house. And every year at Christmas, my students know that is a tradition we have. It's a way that we serve. We don't just talk about it. Um, 
I mentioned last night that last year my students decided to bake cookies for the prisoners in our local jail. And so that one day at school, we just took the day off and we baked cookies and we made plates of cookies and wrote individual notes and took it in to deliver to all the prisoners in our local jail. Make traditions of service. So two we've mentioned so far. Scripture, the practice of Scripture, making it a part of our life, the practice of being servants, and now the final one, the practice of storytelling. And we see this in verse 20 through 23. You can look that in your text. The wet, we're, what we're talking about here is about forming a certain type of person, and a part of being that sort of person is to have an identity, to know who you are, and to have an identity as a servant of Christ. Most people have some identity. You ask them, who are you? And they'll say, well, I'm an American. And when they say that, that means you act in Americanish sorts of ways. And if you say, who are, who are you? And, and they say, well, I'm a firefighter. Well, firefighters, they have certain ways that firefighters act. If you ask somebody, who are you? And they say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, then they have an identity. They, they, they operate out of that identity. Maybe your parents did this to you when you went off somewhere. They said, now remember who you are. And what did they mean? They wanted you to think about your identity and to act out of that. Our world is trying really hard to mold our children into a certain identity. And that identity is at odds with the identity we want, the identity I want. And so God gave his people a way to shape the children's identity and notice that it's not making a list of ten logical rules for why you do certain things. He said this, when your children come to you and ask you, Dad, why do we do all these strange things? Why do we act differently than all the people around us? Then God said, what I want you to do is I want you to tell them stories. I want you to tell them the stories of how God has been with us in the past. I want you to tell stories about how he delivered us from Egypt. And it's not just in this passage where God gave that uh, instruction. You can go to Psalm 78, I think you read from that this morning, where it says that you're going to teach your children, and then all of Psalm 78 is pretty much one long story. We need to be storytellers to our children who... Your, your children will listen to stories somewhere. The question is, who will be that storyteller for them? Will we be the storytellers? Will we highlight the stories of servants? Or will they hear stories of people who find their identity in being how wealthy they are or how well they can play a game? So there's something about stories with plots, with real people, with... who who face really tough situations that grab us and that have a way of our children saying, yeah, you know what? I'm going to be like that person. I heard that story, and I want to be a man like that. I want to be a woman like that. Don't you have your favorite stories of people in the past? Maybe it's the story of Paul Brand. Maybe it's the story of Amy Carmichael. Maybe it's the story of your grandfather. Maybe it's a story about your dad or your mom that you remember, and they told you that story about how God was faithful, and now you think, I want to be like that. I want to be like that person that I heard about. And so I want to finish today by just telling stories. I'm going to tell three stories. And they are stories that I think cover some categories we should think about in our storytelling. So you're a babysitter. Turn off the device. Turn off the iPad. Chuck the iPhone out. Tell stories. Tell your stories. Tell your parents' stories. You'll be a much better babysitter and you'll be shaping the next generation. If you're a parent, tell stories. Uh, I had a, a moment this morning where 
where uh, I needed to remember something, and I woke up to work on this talk, and I, I told Bethany, who was there kind of half asleep or asleep, I said, would you please pray for me? I said, I need to find something. And about two minutes later, just in my mind, I knew where that document was or what that document was. Well, I need to tell that story to my children. They need to hear the stories about how God is working in my life. So three categories. First category, we should tell the stories of servants far away. Servants who are not just like us, people not just like us. And I'd like to tell you the story of Rachunga. I don't know whether you know this story, but it's such a great story, Rachunga Pudaite. At the end of the 1800s, uh, the British were ruling in India, and there was a group of people in the northern part of India called the Mar people. And the Mar people were known as the worst headhunters. Uh, in 1871, this tribal group had gone out and uh, beheaded over 500 tea plantation workers as well as apparently some British soldiers. And in 1910, there was a missionary from Wales, uh, his name was Watkins Roberts, who really had to work hard against the British government, but was able to infiltrate this tribe, and he spent five days there. He had the book of John, and he taught them about Jesus, and some people became believers in this headhunting tribe. And one of the men who became a believer was a man by the name of Chonga. And Chonga noticed something. He noticed that more and more people were becoming Christians. The white man had left, and it was just their people. And he noticed that they were becoming Christians, but they needed the word of God. They needed the word of God in their language. And so he began to pray. He said, Lord, could my son be a person who could go and learn how to read and write and could bring the word of God to my tribe? And so his son Rochunga would become that person. Because of his father, Rochunga, at 10 years of age, hiked 96 miles through dangerous jungles where there were probably leopards and tigers and elephants. And he hiked through the jungle to get to a small village where a mission school was and to study in that school and to begin learning how to read and write. And for the next uh, number of years, I don't know how long it was, four times a year, that little 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy would hike by himself 96 miles through the jungles to get back to his dad. Eventually, Rochunga graduated, as it were, from that little village school, and he went on to Kolkata and studied at a uh, college there. He studied at the University of Allahabad, and eventually he wanted to study biblical Greek and Hebrew, and so he went to Glasgow, he went to Scotland and began studying, and then eventually made it to Wheaton College here in the United States. This was in the 1950s, uh, 1956, 1957, and he was working apparently on his master's degree at Wheaton College, but what his professors may not have known is that in addition to doing all the studies at Wheaton to get his master's degree, at the same time he was developing a, a script to be able to write the Bible in their language because their language didn't actually have a, a script that he wanted to use. And in addition, he was translating the Bible from the original text into the Mar language. In 1958, after studying for years and years and years and years, going from this little tribal village all the way to Wheaton College, in 1958, Rachunga finished the translation of the Bible, and it took two more years of work until that Bible was printed and was being able to be sent back to his, his homeland. I'm going to deviate here just a little bit. One of the really neat parts of the story is that somewhere along through his training at Wheaton, Rachunga found out that that white missionary who had spent five days with those people and had to flee and go away, and who apparently had not heard from that group, he found out that that man was still alive and was living in Canada, and he rode the train up to Canada 
from Wheaton and was able to meet with him and tell him what the Lord was doing for his faithful work years and years before when he only had five days to share the gospel. Rachunga got married. He started 85 village Christian schools. He started seven Christian high schools. He started two junior colleges. He started a seminary. And today, the original school that he started has over 2,600 students. Rachunga just died. Somebody know? It was last year or the year before last. He died in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He was the head of an organization called um, Bibles for the World. Thank you, Bibles for the World. Our children need to grow up hearing stories about people like Rochunga. Our children should also grow up hearing stories of the people that have gone before them in their own stream of Christianity. I'm going to use a phrase here, and I hope you understand what I mean, in their own faith tradition. And that is that we are a part of an Anabaptist faith tradition. And I think it's helpful for them to hear stories of people that are like them. And so I want to tell you the story about John. John grew up in Michigan. He was a Mennonite kid. He was the oldest of four boys. And his dad was a butcher. He and his dad were in business together. I mean, he and his uncle were in business together. And they had a grocery store, and they were butchers. And they cured, they slaughtered animals. They would hang beef. You could go there to the store, and they would cut the piece of beef you wanted to take home and cook. And they made summer sausage. They, uh, they smoked meat. And so they sort of had this butcher operation and, and grocery store. Well, John did what some Mennonite kids do. They went to Bible school and... Then after Bible school, he went into voluntary service in Latin America. And, and after a while, serving some time of voluntary service, he came back. He came home to Michigan, and he got married. And he had a child. And while he was back home working in the butcher shop, you know, just the normal Mennonite American dream, I guess, uh, he got a call from the missions agency where he had served, and they asked him whether he would go back, go back to this Latin American country where he had lived and to serve and that country was the country of Guatemala. And he went back to Guatemala with his wife, and eventually they would have more children. And he entered a country where, at least soon, there was a period of protracted civil war, there was violence, there was guerrilla warfare. Ironically, probably a lot of this because of some U.S. government interference in the country of Guatemala in those years. And one night, in the middle of the night, he was in his home, and a knock came on the door, and there were a series, there was a commander and a soldier outside the house and they called for him to come out of his house and he came out of the house with his wife and his son and his daughters and another gentleman who was living with them and they were hauled outside and the men had guns and the wife she started realizing what was going to happen and she started crying and 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 screaming probably I don't know what she was doing and praying and the soldiers told her to shut up and move her off to the side and they told her husband to get up against the fence and um, the commander told the soldier that it was time to shoot this man. And the man was there against the fence, and his wife was watching, and the soldier picked up his gun, the guerrilla fighter, and shot. And she looked at her husband, and he was still standing. And he picked up the gun again and shot again and missed again. He was still standing. I think he shot the third time, and her husband was still there, strong. And then the soldier turned to the commander and said, I just can't do this. I can't kill him. And handed the gun to the commander, and there was one more shot, and John, John Troyer, one of my dad's very good friends, was assassinated, serving the Lord on the mission field in Guatemala. He was just like us, no different than us, but he was willing to sacrifice his life for the cause 
of Christ. And he's a model of courage that we can learn from. My mom tells me that she remembers the day that my dad got the phone call that his friend had been killed and how his face turned white as he was on the phone uh, hearing about John's death. We should tell stories about people that are like our children. And finally, we should tell stories from our own family and from our own experiences. And since I don't know your family, I'll tell one from my family. My grandfather was a traveling preacher. And he would leave for extended periods of time and leave his family behind. That was more the practice back in those days. I think maybe we've improved since that time. Uh, But grandmother and the kids would stay behind and grandfather would get in his car and he would leave for weeks at a time to go preach across the United States. And at the time, my grandfather and grandmother lived in West Virginia. And you know what West Virginia is like. There are those mountains, and then there are valleys, and in the bottom of the valleys there are streams or rivers, and at inappropriate times, I guess, the rivers rise, the streams rise. Now, my grandparents' property where they lived had a stream running through it, and on the other side of the stream was a pasture, and that's where the cows stayed. And you know what cows are like, they've got to be milked. And so when it was time to milk the cow, they would have to go across the stream, they'd have to get the cow, bring it over to their side of the stream, to I guess where the barn was, and they would milk the cow, and then the cow could go back across to the pasture. Well, on this particular trip, there was a flood, and the cow was on the other side, and there was no way to get across the stream, at least for my grandmother, to get across the stream to get that cow. And so my grandmother did something that we all should do. She prayed. She just prayed to the Lord about the situation. And don't you know that when it was time to milk, the cow led herself across the swollen stream to the barn. And then the cow went back. And the next day, same thing happened. The cow came back across the stream. They milked the cow. The cow went back. And this just continued this way. The cow was coming over to get milk, going back, didn't have to be led until, you guessed it, the day my grandfather got home, And then God thought the grandfather needed to go out and work a little bit. And the cow stopped coming across the stream. You see, I need to hear that story. I need to hear it because it was my grandfather. It was my grandmother. And they were people who trusted in God. You know what? I want to be like Grandfather Lloyd. I want to be like my grandmother. And your children should hear your stories so that they can say, that's the kind of person I want to be. In the midst of our busyness, let's not forget that there are certain simple, simple activities, simple practices that if we embed in our life, they're God practices. They're practices that can shape people to be godly servants of God. Let us immerse our children in the scripture. Let us be servants. We don't need to talk about it. We can just do it. And let us make sure to tell the stories collect those stories, buy those books. Might I suggest one to you right now that needs to be in your library, Small Man of Nanataki. How many of you know the story of the Small Man of Nanataki? Buy it. It's on Amazon. It's no longer in print. It's about a Japanese man in World War II who was a follower of Jesus, was forced to serve in the Japanese army, but because he followed Jesus, he served in a very different sort of way and you should get the book and read it. The story I told last night, Two Brothers, One Mission. Buy that book. Become a collector of stories, stories of servants. Three practices, scripture, servanthood, storytelling. They have the potential to shape a generation for God. Let's be intentional 
about making the most of our time with teaching and training our children so they can grow up to be servants of God. There's no higher calling than to be a servant. God bless you.